in all of professional sports, there may not be a name as immediately recognizable as Tiger Woods. And it's also hard to think of a single athlete who dominated uh, their sport uh, with such mastery for such a long period of time. And certainly it is also hard to think of an athlete who soared to such heights and then precipitously plunged to such depths as Tiger Woods. That trajectory is like none other. And it is explored in a really fascinating new book called Roaring Back, The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods. Uh, the book is written by Kurt Sampson, who is one of the country's most highly respected golf writers, the author of a number of different books, including Hogan and The Masters. He has written extensively on uh, all kinds of different luminaries in the history of professional golf. Uh, his work has appeared in a lot of different places, including uh, Golf Magazine, Golf Digest, uh, Sports Illustrated. And this newest book from the pen of Kurt Sampson is published by Diversion Books, again titled Roaring Back, The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods. Kurt Sampson, we welcome you to the morning show. Greg, thanks so much for having me. Ahead of us talking about this fascinating book, uh, I wonder if you would mind just taking a moment to talk about your own nearly lifelong love affair with the game of golf. And uh, maybe for the sake of our listeners, uh, you can maybe uh, along the way also kind of explain what your relationship has been with golf, the various roles that you have played in the world of golf over the years. Yes, uh, your listeners should picture um, a big bag of Nuts. I'm, I'm, I'm such a pure golf nut, I guess. I've made my living from it in various ways over my uh, checkered career. I, I, I caddied as a kid. I was um, uh, first for my father. It was a terrific bonding experience for me when I was nine, ten years old. And then I turned pro, uh, in a sense, um, as, a, as a caddy at a uh, club in Ohio where we live um, and learned some um, life lessons, shall we say, in the, in the caddy yard. We live near this private club, so I um, like to sneak on it at night or at twilight and play a few holes and try not to get caught. And really, I guess that's what made me a good player and enhanced my fascination with the sport. Um, good player, yeah, just good, not great, far from great. High school, college, junior tournaments. I turned pro, was the world's worst golf pro, easily. Um, I lost money all over the world uh, <laughs> as a touring pro. Uh, I had a hiatus selling widgets, and then I um, just uh, decided to take a flyer on writing about the game. Um, and it's worked pretty well. It's uh, 30 years now, and uh, this is my 18th book. I still love it. Um, I'm looking forward to writing the next book. Um, I, you asked me, Greg, to um, address where I stand with Tiger. Uh, I made his acquaintance when he was 17, um, and I was much younger, too. Uh, I subsequently wrote a book called Chasing Tiger uh, that was published in 2002, um, and, uh, and, and now this one. That first book gave me sort of a baseline knowledge about who he is, where he was from, his attitudes, 
uh, the way the other players felt about him. And I think all that um, really long study has uh, informed uh, this book and made it, uh, I I think, more enjoyable to read and more fun to write. Mm -hmm. I think one of the really striking things about your book is the fact that uh, although there is so much to write about with Tiger Woods himself, his own life, his own triumphs, his own failures, uh, you are not content to, in a sense, limit your focus to Tiger Woods. But you actually write about a whole lot of other luminaries and not even limited to the world of golf. But just for the moment, let's, let's talk about the fact that you know a whole lot about a whole lot of great golfers uh, over the years. Uh, I think it's interesting that you want to write about Tiger Woods very much in relationship to how he compares with others who have come before him or and, and greats in the world of golf who are, who are playing now. Uh, explain why it is, in your view, so important to view Tiger Woods this way, with, with not just a singular focus on him, but mm-hmm. talking about other golfers and to uh, have that kind of wider perspective. Uh, yes, Greg, thanks for noticing. I took pains um, to put Tiger's um, comeback, his redemption story, in perspective. Uh, that is, to compare it to some other great uh, comebacks that we've seen in golf and out of it, mostly in golf. Um, some you've heard of. Uh, ben Hogan, of course, comes to mind first. Um, I wrote a biography of Ben Hogan that, that did well and brought to light just what he went through when his car collided with a Greyhound bus on a foggy morning, and then what he went through to, um, to pull himself together, um, uh, to rehab and come back. You know, the, the, his wins after the bus crash were the stuff of literally Hollywood. Hollywood made a, a movie of uh, Hogan's life called Follow the Sun, while, you know, a movie of his life while he was still living it. But there were some other more obscure uh, people I uh, wanted to um, talk about. Uh, my favorite example of that is a uh, chap named Skip Alexander, yes. who was a, a, a terrific golf pro, uh, doing very well on the tour in 1949, 1950, uh, made the Ryder Cup team, then on a, was in a light airplane crash that burned 70% of his body. Um, but he wanted to come back. His, the way he did it um, is just incredible, and it's worth a movie as much as Hogan's life, maybe. Uh, although Skip didn't make a, a dent in the national consciousness like uh, Hogan did. Tiger's, Tiger's redemption story has such a different flavor from these other people who came back from injury or illness. Or in one case, um, I um, talk about uh, a bullet to the head, a uh, uh, one of our soldiers who was shot in Afghanistan and came back to uh, uh, achieve a lot in golf. He's a well-respected instructor in Southern California and a, um, a competitive player. But to compare that to uh, Tiger, whose problems were largely of his own making, I'm talking about the, uh, you use the right word, precipitous decline um, in the wake of his the allegations, not allegations, the revelations of his uh, 
mess of a personal life, um, the repeated obsessive cheating on his wife. Tiger, after that, went from uh, uh, just the summit of uh, popularity and um, the epitome of a model for kids to somebody parents wanted to their kids to look away from. Uh, he was more an example of how not to do things. And worse, in a way, he was a laughingstock. Do you, you'll recall uh, back then in the 2009, 2010 um, era, every late-night comedian was making Tiger part of the uh, opening monologue. You can, you can just almost hear Leno or Letterman saying, how many mistresses is it today, uh, Paul? You know, those that serial... Uh, collapse of tiger's reputation but he coming back from that um to me is extraordinary um add to that the the uh the, the back surgery he has he has a fused spinal uh, uh vertebra i guess there's no other kind of vertebra is there greg <laughs> but um uh, to uh, come back to the to the top of golf, even if it's only for um, a few months or one or two years, uh, amazing. Uh, people love uh, comeback stories, and Tiger's is uh, a terrific one. One of the most amazing. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Kurt Sampson, author of the book Roaring Back, The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods. And uh, it's interesting, although I, I love the title of the book, in some ways – uh, an even more accurate uh, title would be The Rise and Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods because you don't begin <laughs> with the fall. I mean, you spend plenty of time talking about that earlier phase of, of Tiger Woods' extraordinary career uh, and that uh, that incredible success, which makes, of course, his fall from grace uh, all the more, all the more uh, dramatic. Uh, one of the things I'd love to have you just talk about for a moment is – the experience of writing that earlier book called Chasing Tiger, because one of the things you tell us about in this book is how writing that book ultimately was a real exercise in frustration because of the promised access to Tiger Woods that ultimately was never granted to you. <laughs> Just talk for a moment about that elusive quality of Tiger Woods as you very directly experienced it while while writing that book, and uh, and maybe more about his general elusiveness during his greatest mm-hmm. years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a bitter pill. Uh, although I I don't think it made me bitter. Uh, I was asked to write this book. The uh, premise being, and the promise being, that it would have Tiger's cooperation. But um, it never materialized. He changed his mind or some circumstance or bit of advice he got uh, um, told him, no, you're not going to uh, cooperate with this project. So I wound up having to do what in my business is called a write-around, a uh, 260 uh, pages about a subject who wouldn't talk to me. (laughs) It was... It was a challenge. Uh, I, 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 um, Earl Woods, Tiger's father, who considered himself a master media manipulator, his basic um, uh, caution to, to Tiger, his basic advice was to 
keep us at arm's length and to develop a an arsenal of cliches for any any occasion. So throughout his career, um, Tiger has just been. Well, I, I often have said that um, he's a very exciting person and performer, except when his lips are are moving. Um, but that has that is changing. Um, he is. Uh, made a deal with uh, Discovery Channel, the new owner of Golf Digest, and with, I don't know, some other entity. And he is now uh, talking interestingly, I I think, um, about his uh, life and thoughts on how to play golf and how to practice and so forth. And I took advantage of that for this book. His very first uh, interview after... um, he he made the deal with Discovery Channel was about the Masters, the just completed Masters, and his emotional surges at this point and that, and listening for the roars and what was going through his head and his strategy and that um, and that dripping drama, that emotional back nine on Sunday um, was very helpful to the book. So uh, I, I salute. Tiger for uh, being interesting, um, a little belatedly, but thank you, Tiger. <laughs> hmm. Let's talk for a moment before we talk more specifically about Tiger Woods, about his father, Earl Woods, who uh, passed away back in, in 2006. And incidentally, often the death of Earl Woods is pointed to as a major contributing factor uh, in Tiger Woods' kind of ultimate slide from grace, kind of the disintegration of his personal life and so on. Uh, That's something that you don't seem to say in your book, or at least certainly don't say it directly. Uh, But it's uh, whether or not his death uh, was a contributing factor to Tiger Woods' decline. Certainly Earl Woods had a whole lot to do with Tiger Woods's. Uh, rise uh, to glory in the first place. I was surprised, however, by, in a sense, all of the negative aspects of of Earl Woods that you describe in your book. Um, How do you ultimately regard him? Well, I think that's the correct um, lens to examine Tiger through, um, through Earl. Um, Earl was this uh, man, he was a good athlete, uh, baseball player, um, who, you know, in that day, I guess the late uh, late 40s, early 50s, when he was playing baseball for University of Kansas uh, at a, on a road trip, the one black guy on the team would have to stay at a different hotel. Um, uh, he never lost this feeling of being aggrieved and... Um, disrespected and that came into um it, it became crystal clear in the and the attitudes he the attitude he put forth when he and tiger were uh touring around earl earl quit his job when tiger was about 13 i think um and he was tiger's guy um full time uh taking him to tournaments um, um overseeing the practice hiring the instructors and so forth, uh, it, was, it was all Earl. And in, a, in, a, in that sense, he did such a masterful job of taking this kid who was merely talented all the way to being um, 
a champion. But at the same time, um, he was negligent, I'd say, in, in teaching Tiger the, the niceties, how to get along with people. Simple kindness and politeness wasn't displayed by Earl Woods, and Tiger didn't see it. So I think that's, you know, that's a straight line to why Tiger's been a terrible tipper <laughs> and um, a, able to ignore autograph requests from little kids, um, uh, a distant uh, man, um, un, unwilling uh, to, or unable um, to, mel- to melt in some ways. You know, I didn't, you're right, I didn't say that um, Earl's death and then Tiger's disintegration uh, as a husband and father, that there was a straight line there, but we can't, uh, uh, because I'm not sure that's true. It, it, it could be. But what I, I feel more confident saying is that Tiger's um, strange uh, obsession with the U.S. Navy SEALs had to be a salute to um, his um, father, who had been a, a Green Beret. You, you probably already know uh, that um, for a period of years, Tiger was just certain that he was going to drop professional golf in favor of going into the military and being this stealthy uh, uh, um, demolition demolition, uh, expert and part of a team uh, that would uh, infiltrate and um, uh, kidnap and kill on behalf of us all. Uh, And you trace trace that obsession very much to who Earl Wood uh, was and Tiger's sort of uh, continuing need to please his father, even uh, once his father was was dead and buried, in a sense. You know, we're always guessing on things like this. If Tiger were to um, write a book, he says he's going to write another memoir. Um, surely he'll uh, address this. I'm, you know, it won't be much of a book if he doesn't. I'm not sure he will know. Um, human action and emotion is such a hard to read thing we can just make uh, educated uh, guesses based on the on the knowledge and data in front of us uh, but Earl um, Earl's um, influence on his son was immense I also was struck at one point when you used the word grandiosity to describe Earl Woods and uh, and the fact that the way he spoke about his son and his talent and his potential even beyond the world of golf. I mean, a potential to even bring nations together. I mean, it was kind of extraordinary, some of the things that he said about about his son. What kind of role do you think that specifically played in, in shaping his son uh, to have to – have the, the, the father of Tiger Woods talk about Tiger uh, in in ways that made him uh, nearly a, a, a second messiah of sorts. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Earl with a microphone and a drink and making those uh, statements about uh, Tiger being up there with Mandela and Gandhi as a, um, 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 a healer of national strife and a world figure. I think it made Earl look 
foolish and it made Tiger embarrassed. Uh, I think Tiger had the uh, was was correct to be embarrassed by his father going off like that. Uh, it, it just wasn't going to come to pass. It it, it hasn't, and it, and it I don't think it ever will. It was it seemed to me just a a, a, a strange sort of uh, premise in a in a way a burden on Tiger that that he he didn't need uh, a, a a lofty expect, expectation that. No one could live up to, um, and certainly Tiger hasn't. He's just as human as you and me, and he's he is not um, a, a world leader in the way that um, Earl was was picturing him to be. Hmm. Um, just a strange episode uh, and a facet of the Earl and Tiger relationship. Let me ask you about a couple of other moments from early in the book as you were kind of describing Tiger Woods and what he was like uh, in that sort of early ascendant period. Uh, One interesting remark uh, comes as you are discussing some of the people who were uh, his coaches or instructors uh, on on the course. And at this point in time, you're talking about uh, his transition uh, from uh, Butch Harmon to uh, Hank Haney. And uh, as you are describing kind of Tiger Woods's relationship with these various figures, you say that Tiger was an astonishingly dependent student. And uh, it's kind of interesting to think about that with someone with such extraordinary uh, natural ability, and yet uh, someone who really needed guidance uh about the game of golf can you just talk for a moment about about that i i I will and you know greg it's something i still don't understand um whether tiger uh, would acknowledge it or not he was a terrific natural uh golfer and had already mastered the game in, in in so many ways but then especially during the hank haney years Geez, they talked almost every day, and uh, uh, and more than a talk. Um, Hank went to most tournaments and uh, visited uh, the, the Woods' home in Orlando um, a lot. Um, I, I I don't get it, uh, but and there's there's the fact that um, if Tiger w- was hitting his seven iron slightly left to right and wanted it right to left, he. He needed somebody else to tell him uh, what he might, what he was doing. Uh, I, I uh, it's a, um, although I describe it, this this process, the Haney years, and there's a terrific book, by the way, called The Big Miss that that gives you chapter and verse on this. Uh, although I described it, I, I don't. I, as I said, I don't understand it. Uh, I think uh, as Tigers um, moved on. Um, I think he's become uh, less dependent on an instructor. In fact, at the moment, he doesn't really have one. Um, he has a guy who, you know, just is a set of eyes to tell him, oh, that your backswing's a bit flat, something like that. Otherwise, it's, uh, it's Tiger depending on himself, which is a very good idea because you're out there alone on the, in a competitive uh, round of golf. You, you've got to figure it out yourself. You know, I, I'd like to just uh, go back much earlier. Tiger, starting at age 13, 
this fascinates me. I've known it for a long time, but some of um, your listeners may have forgotten if they didn't know. Starting at age 13, um, Earl had hired a hypnotist for Tiger. He was regularly hypnotized um, from that age uh, forward for X number of years hmm. with these terrific um, positive reinforcements. Tiger could, he'd get in the hypnotic state, and Jay Brunza would say to him, overcome the inhibition of fear, embrace the challenge of the moment, or whatever other, I think those are, are valid examples. There are a few other phrases uh, that he had. And then Tiger would live that uh, beautifully. It just uh, makes me want to hypnotize myself. <laughs> it is interesting that you, you, you quote one of his uh, coaches, I think it's Butch Harmon, who said, um, maybe in, in talking with Hank Haney, who succeeded him, uh, it's a tough team to be on, meaning when you work for Tiger Woods, uh, it is a tough assignment. And I know from all of the people that you have talked about who have been in that close circle of Tiger Woods in, in, in a close orbit and have worked for him, that truer words are probably never spoken. Explain why working for Tiger Woods in those kind of relationships was very, very demanding. And to some extent, to some, in some cases could also be, uh, to some extent demeaning. You know, just look at the team, um, at, at the top, I suppose, I mean, not counting Tiger is the agent, uh, Mr. Steinberg and around Steinberg are, um, marketing people, um, they're monetizing everything always, uh, building the brand, building Tiger's fortune and their own. There was therefore always from a variety of, uh, of people uh, pressure for our thoroughbred to do well in the next race. It was, uh, it, I think it, it finally wore out um, Haney. Uh, I think Harmon was wearing out, um, having not only this fairly difficult um, student, but the, the, his entourage um, were also quite um, willing to exert some pressure if, if things weren't uh, going well for, um, for Tiger. Uh, it's not something I would ever want to attempt. Uh, I, I think... Um, it, it's very interesting, though, the way uh, it came out. And, and again, uh, Haney's book with Jaime Diaz is uh, quite a revelation on, on how it actually worked. Mm. I also was struck by a, a line you say about the way in which Tiger Woods practiced. And, and in, in your words, um, and actually, I, I don't remember now it's, if, if this, you know, I think these are your words. Um, you said that Tiger Woods didn't practice so much as he trained. What is that distinction uh, as far as you're concerned? And, and how does the one word better describe Tiger Woods' regimen versus the other? Uh, uh, training, uh, to me, I, I don't know. It, it seems to be, I was trying, the context I think I was trying to subtly uh, impart there was military training. The, the same military training that Tiger became obsessed with 
he he spent a number of of weeks, quite a few of them, actually training with uh, Navy SEALs, uh, based on who he was and uh, to some degree Earl's connections. Um, so for Tiger, it was um, you know the weights, the workout, the the um, repetitions on the practice tee, playing. Um, a great deal of, um, well, not just the discipline of the thing, uh, but the schedule. It was uh, just as it would be in a, on a in basic training at the uh, Marine Corps uh, depot. It would it's a rise at 6.30, work out till 7.15, breakfast until 8.00. Um, hit a hundred balls, do a hundred push-ups, whatever, whatever it was. Such a, a regimented um, thing versus the. Uh, you asked me to contrast that with mere practice. I don't know. Practice just seems not quite so. Um, have such hard edges. Um, seems more fluid to me than the than the way Tiger went about it. Right. Uh, you say he trained. As if he were in the military, <laughs> and that is not a not a bad way to say it. Although it's interesting, you quote uh, Hank Haney in his book saying that Tiger respected practice; it was sort of his church, and maybe that explains how he could be so wholeheartedly devoted to it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I agree. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Kurt Sampson. We're talking about his book, Roaring Back: The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods. Well, we can. Uh, we can talk about uh, all of his uh, uh, triumphs through those uh, first glory years, but uh, we do need to talk about the fall. I want to ask you, as the author of this book, about a very conscious choice that you made to really avoid uh, a lot of salacious aspects to Tiger Woods' kind of personal and professional downfall. And this is stuff that that uh, I think most people would would uh, f- forgive you for spending time writing about, and it's not that it's not mentioned at all, but you really have made a concerted effort to 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 demonstrate restraint in talking about this aspect of the Tiger Woods story. I wonder if you could explain why this restraint was so important to you. And I also wonder if, for instance, the good folks at Diversion Books or your editor. Uh, contested that uh, decision at all? I mean, uh, maybe out of the uh, thought that you might sell a few more books if this book were a bit more salacious with those kind of details. Why was this restraint so important to you? Uh, thanks for noticing uh, th- that as well, Greg. Uh, uh, a couple of things occur. First, I don't want to work that side of the street. It seems like I'd be um, getting my hands dirty in some way. I don't mean to sound prissy about it, but I, I, I never have written stuff like that. I don't want to start. Uh, point two would be uh, the National Enquirer just did a bang-up job of de- <laughs> providing all those details. So uh, it, 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 that's the proper place for that stuff uh, to be. Uh, I think people really interested in it can go online and look at contemporaneous issues of the National Enquirer um, and get the, the dirty lowdown on everybody and everything. Um, you're right, it was low-hanging fruit. It would have been easy enough to um, write um, 
sentences beginning, and then Tiger called Jamie um, while putting Rachel on hold or something, something <laughs> like that. Uh, I, I just didn't want to go there. Um, I, it was referred to enough in the national media. I, I think it was well-known enough. Um, and to me, um, I could move the story forward just by referring to it and, you know, letting the reader know that I, I'm not ignorant of all that happened and um, and neither are they. Right. I want to, in terms of his fall, I want to ask you very specifically to respond to something that you include in your book, which is, uh, I believe, uh, an excerpt from a column by Dan Jenkins, who is uh, very, very well known in the in the the the, uh, the world of golf as a writer, and this is something that he wrote about Tiger Woods for Golf Digest in uh, early 2010. And you call these two of the mildest paragraphs in this essay. I'm going to read them, and then I want you to tell us if you agree with this. Uh, so this is uh, Dan Jenkins writing, I'll tell you what Hogan, Palmer, and Nicholas were at their peak. They were every bit as popular as Tiger. They endured similar demands on their time, but they handled it courteously, often with ease and enjoyment. They were never what Tiger allowed himself to be from the start. Spoiled, pampered, hidden, guarded, orchestrated, and entitled. And my specific question beyond if you agree with that assessment is how much did that have to do with what ultimately consumed Tiger Woods's life? I mean, does that help explain why he allowed this reckless third life, as you call it, to eat up the other two and nearly uh, irreparably. Yeah, uh, um, Greg, you've thanks for reading the book. It's obvious from your questions that you have read it, and the questions are great. Dan Jenkins was a, a, a friend of mine, always very helpful uh, to me, and so I know a lot about Dan and where he's coming from. Through his professional career, um, Dan was the one writer or the main writer confidant, I would say, of in succession Hogan, Palmer, and Nicholas. He the best in the game would uh, would get to know Dan, and Dan would get to know them, and they would open up to him. Now here comes Tiger, who won't say a word. Um, Dan and Golf Digest tried everything to put the two together. But Tiger, again, Earl's influence, Steinberg's uh, a natural reticence or um, the fact that Tiger's an introvert. I think he didn't want to go um, – he didn't want the give and take with Dan, who was a very, uh, who was a very sharp individual. He died about uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, how I'm sorry. That the second part of the question, Greg, was how was that from Earl? Was that what you were asking? No, it's, or, but it was. Did you, do you agree with this assessment of Dan Jenkins? I mean, is this a fair assessment of who Tiger Woods was, and what role? If if this in fact is who Tiger Woods was, spoiled, pampered, hidden, guarded, orchestrated, and entitled, mm -hmm. does this help explain how this so-called third life of his, this reckless third life, 
uh, consumed his other two lives and nearly ended his career for good. I mean, does that help explain how such a thing could happen? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, to the, the the first part of the question, I do basically agree with what uh, with what Dan wrote. Um, as a caddy, a professional caddy said to me, though, um, we golf writers, we writers think a guy is wonderful according to how he treats us, whereas, whereas the fans with no expectation of having an interaction with Tiger Woods or some other superstar, they don't care if, a, if, the, if they're not cooperative with us uh, scribblers. Um, you know, that's why Tiger's very popular uh, with one segment and maybe not so, not so popular with the other. Um, did, the, did his guardedness, his, I don't know, in a way his isolation, did that lead to, to his period of downfall? I think you could make a case that that's true. I uh, I would like to hear um, Tiger's comment on that. And it's one, it was one of the questions um, I, I wanted to ask him. I was left with the the feeling that um, he had become deeply unhappy despite winning uh, golf tournaments. That um, expectations were not meeting reality, and vice versa. Um, that the rewards he pictured weren't great enough and he decided that extreme self-indulgence might um, fill the hole in his soul. Mm. That's my educated guess. Of course, there are two things that go wrong. Uh, well, maybe more than that, but but there's first of all this, this uh, huge scandal that engulfs Tiger Woods and leads to the ending of most of his corporate sponsorships and, of course, the rupture of all kinds of friendship and just his reputation is left in tatters. But then beyond that are, are, are a host of physical issues, uh, some who pre- which predate this period. But, uh, but what you catalog here is just extraordinary. I mean, all that he had to endure in terms of physical difficulties. In fact, if if I read the math correctly, between 2007 and 2019, he had seven different surgeries and was contending with all kinds of issues, several of which might have ended the career of, of, of any other athlete. Um, just how can we explain uh, an elite athlete experiencing all that Tiger Woods did from a physical point of view? I, I think, um, well, two things occur to me on that. One is um, he's an obsessive individual. We have to, have to agree um, that that's, that's true. The obsessive practice, the obsession with everything in, in golf the, um, that is required to, to win at his level if you know any professional golfer, and this may be uh, more so than other professional athletes, everything goes through the uh, the lens of how does this affect my game? And, and Tiger is a, a pure expression of, of that. Um, uh, my, the second half of that point, why and how he could um, come back from so much injury, I think it's also self-image when no matter what um, the – um, the sex scandal, the injuries. When Tiger looks in the mirror, he sees only a golf champion. I, 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 I think he's got 
he's got nothing else. He is, um, um, he's got to win. He's going to win. It's a, a level of self-belief that I, I, I don't think I've seen before. Describe the new people who enter his life at this point in time who are able to uh, assist him in this long and difficult road back, including uh, including the, the, the coach uh, who is unlike anybody else before who had held that position in Tiger Woods' life. Um, are you referring to uh, Sean Foley? Right. Um, yeah, he was... I'd like to know Sean a little bit better. I didn't, I've not met him. Um, And frankly, gosh, this is just one part of the writer's frustration um, that your listeners may not care about. But everybody um, in Tiger's orbit um, wants to stay in his orbit. And talking to somebody like me is a thing that could get him kicked out. So uh, that said, yeah, Sean was a little bit uh, different uh, versus um, Haney and uh, uh, Butch, who are always quoting Ben Hogan and the uh, old school of golf instruction. Um, Sean was all biomechanics and uh, muscle groups and um, specific parts of the anatomy. I think that, that appealed uh, to Tiger. He started peppering his press conferences with uh, references to um, – uh, what, what was his famous phrase? He didn't play well one day because his uh, uh, his gluteus wasn't firing. <laughs> 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 Which, I don't know, that one just stuck with me. Um, but it's a new day for Tiger. He's a happier camper. Uh, um, he seems to be solid with this girlfriend who looks totally unlike any of the other girlfriends. Um, He's a doting father. Um, the kids are growing. He's involved in their lives. He lives near them. Um, and, you know, he's at soccer practice and picking him up from school and so forth, sharing custody with his, his uh, ex-wife. So, you know, that's, that's part of the, the new uh, Tiger, the Tiger I talk about in uh, – or not talk about so much as show him in action uh, because uh, – good part of this book really is instant nostalgia for the 2019 masters. I, I uh, the bi- biographical aspect, of course I ha- I saluted, but um, this, this win uh, at Augusta um, moved the needle so much. It broke uh, TV records that it stood for quite a while. Right. Um, an extremely popular win. Yeah. I think one of the uh, most intriguing points about, Tiger Woods's comeback uh, to me stems from a, a quote you include from uh, an interview with uh, his earlier coach Butch Harmon. Uh, this is in 2016 when when uh, he says, "I don't know if Tiger can ever come back. It would be so good for the game, but Tiger can't do mediocre." And mm-hmm. you go and you go on to say, "But he did," meaning Tiger Woods. He did mediocre. And worse, it was as if some imposter had stepped into his shoes and put on his swooshes. I think until I read those words, I, I didn't had not really stopped to think about what it would be like to be such a fabulous golfer. I mean, playing the game in some ways better than anyone had ever played it, 
and to find yourself in such a different position where suddenly you are mediocre and sometimes worse, what that would feel like and how tempting it would be to hang up the clubs altogether uh, and, and not endure that. And yet somehow Tiger Woods managed to endure that somehow and mm-hmm. ultimately surpass that. It was such a strange interval, uh, Greg, when, and, and really uh, brief in the uh, scheme of things, when Tiger was playing, but he just really couldn't play the game anymore. He had that, uh, those few episodes of the chip yips uh, that we hackers get sometimes in which you, you hit one fat and then you skull the next one. Uh, uh, Tiger, Tiger was doing that. It was um, a through-the-looking-glass um, thing for us observers. That must have been for, for Tiger, too. Um, but, uh, again, we've re- we're returning to this, this theme. The guy works extremely hard to, uh, to, to rehab. Um, there were, uh, he had said aloud, that's about it for me in golf, um, said it to a number of people on a number of occasions. But he he kept it going and um, and returned to the mountaintop. I don't see it lasting. However, um, this uh, fusion of his uh, uh, the vertebrae and his lumbar spine that's not good for flexibility. It is good for arthritis. Um, it's a, a, a certainty that he's going to become arthritic in that uh, area. Um, he'll have to adapt. I think he's already adapting. His, to me, his swing is different. He plays a more conservative game. He hits a, a sort of um, – your dyed-in-the-wool golfers will know what I mean um, – sort of a blockout shot in which he doesn't really release his hands very very much or very aggressively. It results in a, in a, in a gentle fade that doesn't go as far, but uh, the ball – easy to find. Hmm. Well, it's an incredible story. And as I said at the top, one of the things that you do that's especially interesting is the way you share other uh, intriguing comeback stories uh, by golfers like Ben Hogan and Skip Alexander and uh, by somebody like Babe Diedrichsen, that that great uh, athlete from the 30s and, and 40s whose life and career, which ended on the professional golf course, was was tragically ended by cancer. And uh, an actor, uh, Roscoe Arbuckle, or Fatty Arbuckle, whose career uh, went down in flames due to uh, unfair accusations that, uh, uh, that uh, ended his career and ultimately then his life so sadly. Uh, all of these comeback stories put into proper perspective what Tiger Woods has managed to accomplish. I think you chronicle this story in amazingly vivid fashion in your book, Roaring Back, published by Diversion Books. Kurt Sampson, I congratulate you on a great book, and I thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. This was great fun. I really enjoyed it too, Greg. Thank you so much for having me on your show.